Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey. Hey. Maybe I will. Hello. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. I hope everything's okay out there. Normally I say, this is Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. Maybe I can stop doing that now, almost 800 episodes in. I think people know who this is, right? Not that I'm some famous guy, but I mean the show's called Other People with Brad Listy. I think that sort of implies the person talking is Brad Listy. That's who this is. And it's good to be with you. Today on the program, I am very happy to welcome Sloane Crosley back into the fold. She has a new novel out called Cult Classic. There's no shame anymore in being into your body. There's no shame in talking about wellness culture and what's good for you and adaptogen powders. And I'm like, you should be ashamed. <laughs> the reason you're not ashamed is because people who are much smarter are talking about it very publicly. Okay, there we go. That is Sloane Crosley. Her new novel again is called Cult Classic, available now from MCD, an imprint of Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and its new release entitled, Oh, You Thought This Was a Date? Apocalypse Poems by C. Russell Price. C. Russell Price's first full-length poetry collection is a somatic grimoire. How do you like that? It's a somatic grimoire exploring desire, gender, and sexuality in multiverse, littered with flowers and product placement. This is part pop culture bubblegum lip smack, part battle cry. It is a collection that asks, what is radical vengeance? And does true survivorship from sexual trauma exist only in fantasy? Or is it attainable? 
Listeners of the Other People podcast receive a 20% discount on, oh, you thought this was a date, or any other title from Northwestern University Press. All you got to do is use the promo code PPL20. Just go to nupress.northwestern.edu and enter the promo code PPL20. Get 20% off on Oh You Thought This Was a Date by C. Russell Price and any other title that you may desire. One more time, the website is nupress.northwestern.edu. Don't forget to use that promo code PPL20. This episode is also brought to you by Texas Tech University Press. Texas Tech University Press is proud to announce a new publishing collaboration with the Diasporic Vietnamese Artists Network, also known as DVAN. DVAN promotes nonfiction, fiction, and poetry to empower Vietnamese artists. The first publication from TTUP and DVAN is the novel Constellations of Eve by Abigail Wynn Rosewood, my guest this past week on the podcast. Constellations of Eve is a philosophical fable of art and fate. And in it, Abigail Wynn Rosewood paints a world that floats above our own and contours the infinitesimal moments that shape who we love, over whom we obsess, and how we decide what to live for. It is available right now wherever books are sold, to learn more about Constellations of Eve or other Divan books, visit ttupress.org. All right. So I think we're ready for the main event. I don't know if I have anything else to say. Oh, this is what I have to say. A tree fell in my backyard last week. And it was a big tree and there was no indication that it was unhealthy. In fact, I don't think it really was. I think it was just too heavy. And the way that it grew, it kind of grew in a V shape and one side of the V was heavier than the other. And so it kind of split and fell to the ground with a very loud crash at sunrise. I had just gotten up and was brushing my teeth when it happened. And I thought something fell inside the house. And so I ran out of the bathroom and into the hallway upstairs. And I looked down to see what was going on and there was nothing. And then I went back inside and ended up looking out the window and saw this tree that had fallen across our backyard, which is where my kids play all the time and could very well have been playing just like an hour from when I was brushing my teeth. Like sometimes they go out there before school. So it was this big like head fuck where I was like, oh my God, if this tree had fallen on one of my kids or on me, it would have killed me. Like it's a heavy tree, but it happened to have fallen at uh, dawn. A tree fell at dawn in my yard and thank God nobody was injured and it didn't touch my house. It fell just so. So like it was like the tips of the branches kind of grazed the garage where I'm sitting right now. And uh, kind of reached up just to the foundation of our house, but didn't, you know, didn't do any structural damage or anything. So it's just this very odd, very lucky situation. And it is the second tree that has fallen in my backyard in the past year. We had a fig tree, which was considerably smaller 
and it was not doing well. So we weren't really that surprised that it toppled over. And then we also have this big old avocado tree and I'm going to cut it down because I'm scared that it's going to fall. And I think some people might say, Brad, don't cut the avocado tree down. That's, uh, that's sad. But we've had two trees fall all in this same area. And I'm thinking that there might be something wrong with the soil. And I can't have the risk of this giant avocado tree falling on one of my kids. God forbid. So somebody's coming this weekend and they're going to cut it down. So it's just weird. It's weird when something like that happens and you start to think of like how narrowly you escaped like a, a true calamity. That would have been a disaster if somebody would have been out in the yard when that thing fell. It's just weird how fate works. So I guess all's well that ends well and we're going to plant some new stuff back there, but I got to have an arborist come out. I like that that's a job. You're just an arborist, like a tree expert. And I know people might say, Brad, that's a little bit ridiculous to have like a tree expert come out to your house and evaluate, but we've had two trees fall. I want somebody to look at the soil and tell me if it's okay to plant things back there. Because it is, it's sad, you know, you lose all your trees. We've lost a lot of our shade and privacy. It's like, it looks denuded, I believe is the word. But what are you going to do? I cannot have falling trees in my yard. Today on the program, once again, my guest is Sloane Crosley, making her triumphant return to The Other People Show. Her new novel, Cult Classic, is out there now from MCD, and it is earning rave reviews and plaudits. Sloane Crosley is an incredibly funny writer, witty, charming, uh, deeply smart, everything that you want. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling essay collections, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, which was a 2009 finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Uh, another essay collection called How Did You Get This Number? And another one called Look Alive Out There, a 2019 finalist for the Thurber Prize. Sloane Crosley is also the author of the best-selling novel, The Clasp. She has served as editor of the Best American Travel Writing Series and is featured in the Library of America's 50 Funniest American Writers. She was the inaugural columnist for the New York Times op-ed Townies series, has been a contributing editor at, at uh, Interview Magazine, and a columnist for The Village Voice, Vanity Fair, The Independent, Departures, and The New York Observer. She is a contributing editor currently for Vanity Fair, and she has a new nonfiction book in the works, which you will hear us discuss briefly. It is called Grief is for People and will be published in 2023. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, very excited to have Sloane back on the show and to get a chance to talk with her and catch up. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sloane Crosley, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Cult Classic. I am in my kitchen. I'm actually sitting, I've been avoiding exactly where I am. I'm in the kitchen of my apartment, and I've been avoiding it because uh, for my refrigerator has literally been running. And so I can't have, can't do interviews sitting here, right. but it seems to have calmed down just for you. Oh, really? Um, but I'm in the kitchen of my apartment in the West Village where I live. Okay. And I want to start by asking you about being funny because you're very funny. You're funny in person. You. You're, you're funny on the page. And a question that was occurring to me as I was reading your book was how much work goes into being funny. Is a person naturally funny? I think that's kind of true. You sort of have a funny thing going on. You, you, you have a wit or you have a facility with language or whatever it is, a quickness. But is it also something that you can hone? And are earlier drafts of your book like markedly less funny? And do the jokes come uh, into like sharper focus as you revise? I think well, you are you can be naturally funny, and I think I I probably am, but it's the the modesty it takes to answer this question that you have to work on because it sounds if I say the truth, which is that I actually have to um, sort of prune the the prose and make sure it's not just a sort of symbol bashing monkey uh, every every paragraph is more energy and more effort, the the selection of which, you know, sort of darlings, or in my case, jokers, to murder, uh, that is where the work comes in. Interesting. Is, 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 is not so much to go through and, um, you know, in Hollywood parlance, punch something up, but to just take it away so that it's not a stand-up routine and so that it's more what serves the story, what doesn't. You know, ask yourself, is this good for the Jews, but instead of Jews, narrative. You know, like it's it's <laughs> so that because it because it can be kind of a, a detriment, which I know sounds like I should be like flipping my hair like oh, this whole thing, you know, <laughs> but it, it really can actually detract from the story and, you know, become this kind of thing where people are like, oh, it's really funny. I forgot what it was about. Right. Uh, right. So OK. You can do damage to yourself so you can learn. But can you learn in the other direction? 
like you can learn to self-edit anybody can and that's not that doesn't just apply to humor but can you learn to be funny when you're not i don't think so i don't think so but i think that's actually a quality i don't think that's anything to worry about at the same time i mean i have i remember i taught narrative nonfiction uh briefly in the mfa program at columbia and it was only open to candidates for fiction and at that point narrative nonfiction wasn't as popular as it is now and it was really funny because i could tell that they were like olympians who thought they were participating in the ice capades like you know like what is this <laughs> they're slumming <laughs> they're totally slumming exactly but it was weird because I, I intentionally brought in examples of essays that were not funny. So I would bring in Sedaris, of course, but also um, there's a lot of there's a great personal essay by uh, Lauren Laura Hillenbrand, who you know wrote Sea Biscuit. It's one of my favorites, called A Sudden Illness in the New Yorker, and like tried to take it apart, and would keep on showing them unfunny examples because I didn't want them to feel that these things were so intertwined. Because most of the stuff I read isn't that funny. Interesting. Well, that actually kind of makes sense to me. I was going to ask you that. It's like. For a person who works in a com like a comedic or semi-comedic mode on the page, I think there's some logic to the notion that you would be reading like books about the Holocaust or you know I, that's that, where everyone goes right? straight to the Holocaust. <laughs> or like, what's something that's like mildly dark? Yeah, yeah. People go to World War Two. World War Two. I mean, especially maybe bros. Maybe it's a guy yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. you know. But I, I don't know. I've, I think I've heard that in the past. You know, there are people who are like, yeah, I don't ingest comedy. I make comedy. And I think as a consumer, you know, reckoning with more serious things or reckoning with reality right. more squarely might make some sense. Well, I, I do tend to do that. Or I go old, you know. I mean, Lost Illusions is hilarious, but it's Balzac. It's not on the tip of anyone's tongue at this exact, you know, it's not the hot book that's just out. <laughs> Um, I wish it was. That'd be great. Right. But um, it's it's when I do read things that are, you know, I'll read someone's uh, old autobiography or just something that is informative in some way, um, because I think it comes from a sense of actually insecurity that what I do is um, not concrete. You know, Virginia Woolf always used to call it rainbow and granite. And is mine all rainbow? So I tend to read a lot of granite, even though she was saying you need both. But I feel like even the the comedy I read, like I, Sam Lipside has a book out, I think, this fall, and I, I love him, um, but he tends to be very dark or like the sellout when I think of fiction, especially that I read that's dark. Even Gary Steingart can, can be a little dark sometimes. And that I do tend to read, so I sort of somewhat misspoke. I do, I do, you know, a little bit of Holocaust. You know, there was a great article I read ages ago when Tina Fey became the head writer for SNL. She gave this interview to The New Yorker that I'm now going to butcher the quote, but she said something like, you know, a, a normal person thinks it's funny to dress up Will Ferrell like an old lady and push him down the stairs. A comedy writer thinks it's funny to push an old lady down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the stuff that I read that I find um, truly funny is, is quite dark. So obviously I'm here referring to the Holocaust. <laughs> I'm the same way. I mean, I don't know if I'm as funny as you, but I definitely like probably darker stuff and respond to humor and i'm just always fascinated by how funny people are wired and like what or the why yeah or why like what's the constitution what's the like what's the diet like you said like the reading diet or like the cultural diet and then or the childhood diet i feel like for the answer for men this is a gross generalization but the answer for men tends to either be a combination or one of the following two things which it was either to pick up women but that's slightly older right to get girls to like them 
or to uh, fend off bullies and fend off embarrassment. For me, it was how you proved you were smart in my house. Bringing home somebody who is not quick and does not talk at a rapid clip, it usually doesn't go well for that person. In your house? Not, not in my childhood house. I mean, now I feel like I can, you know, my, I'm taller than my mom. I, you know, I can take them. But, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> but, but in it, like my teenage years, you know, or like, you know, you're bringing home a guy from college or something like that, or even a friend from college. It could be platonic. It's, I think, a little, it's a lot for a stranger. So you lived in a household of quick-witted people. Jerks. <laughs> Just complete monsters. Sociopaths. <laughs> Quick, quick-witted sociopaths. They weren't even that... Um, Gosh, I hope they're listening. They weren't even that quick. <laughs> um, it's more that they they just respond quickly and they shift quickly. Maybe it's just an issue of attention span more than comedy. You know, they just the, the they'll make a three point turn conversationally really quick, and you have to keep up. And that's not necessarily wit. That could be ADD, but they have one of those two things. Were they like academics or like what was, I'm trying to remember past conversations, like siblings. Yeah, I don't know if we ever talked about it. So my father, this, this sort of um, portrayal makes a little more sense for my father than for my mother. My father worked in advertising. Um, uh. He worked for uh, DBD Needham, which is really hard to say for a kid uh, for a long time on various accounts. And so that, I think that world working in advertising, uh, he thinks Mad Men is unrealistic for the record. Oh, and I'm like, really? No one drove a John Deere tractor through the office? And, <laughs> you, know, you didn't impregnate a secretary? I'm so glad. <laughs> fabulous. Um, yeah, fabulous. Uh, but then my mother, it makes no sense because she uh, just retired after 40-something years of teaching special ed. Um, so that's a lot of patience and kindness <laughs> no my son my son has my son has disabilities and i work okay. i work with aids like you know his therapists and everything and i'm like these are the saints of the world these are the best but people in the world if my mother was was my mother i know her response to hearing what you just said would be oh the children are fine it's the parents that are the problem yeah <laughs> she, well she, I, had, she had issues with you know the is this happening what does this mean this testing you know and and sort of or the parents weren't keeping on the kids to do their homework or their exercises or wherever level, um, whatever level they were at. Um, her complaints my whole childhood were not about the kids. Right. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. The parents have like, I mean, it's like everything, what was the quote? Like everything bad that ever happened to me happened to me when I was a kid and I could handle it. You know, it's like adults, <laughs> they get yeah. into, just, you know, tough situations and it's, and you uh, can't do it anymore. No. But yeah, so that's, so that's, so that's, that's that. And, um, yeah. All right. So I want to also talk to you. I, I, is it wrong for me to think of your new novel in a Dickensian light? Like the ghosts of yeah. boyfriends past? I mean, was this on your mind? Is this like a, a connection that you yourself were thinking of as you were writing it? I mean, again, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mean to, uh, just because I was thinking of it doesn't necessarily put me in the ring with Dickens. I don't know if that needs to be said. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, even there's a point, it's like a throwaway line, but there's a there's a line at some point where, you know, our heroine Lola, when she finds out that this sort of experiment in which men are going to be propelled at her, you know, as if from a t-shirt gun, everyone she's ever dated as she meanders through downtown Manhattan. When she discovers this, she even says something like, the guy who's running this experiment says, you know, hey, think of it like a Christmas carol. And she says, yeah, by way of the exorcist, you know, <laughs> where, so, but, so it's a very warped um, view. You know, I was thinking about it the other day 
which sounds disingenuous. It sounds like I was thinking about it forever, but it really, I really did just when I was answering questions, you know, in a pre-pub fashion. The the cinematic comps and actually, uh, I guess, the literary ones for this book are all men. So it's always some guy who takes his life for granted. You know, it's a wonderful life. Uh, her eternal sunshine of the spotless mind you know, Groundhog Day, I, I could go on. Um, it's always a guy who needs to become less of a jerk and learn to appreciate his life and learn what is important and what he really wants. And if, you know, feminism has taught us anything, women can be assholes too. <laughs> so I just, I, I like the idea that this sort of speculative, imaginative device is is being thrown at a woman and not a man. Yeah, I was thinking. I that was, that was the other comp in my head was Charlie Kaufman. Like it's, it's a Kaufman esque yeah, kind of plot. Guy. And again, I would be happy uh, from from your mouth to readers' ears, eyes. Yeah, no, I think yeah. it's. I definitely feel that way, and I'm curious to know because this is like what I guess you would call a high concept idea for a novel, or there's like you know it's a high concept device or whatever. This uh, this Golconda. This yes. kind of what company slash cult. It's like a startup slash cult <laughs> that helps people come into contact with their past and their past relationships. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, I would say as a you know the the cult in the title is just does sort of triple duty. You know, there's the obviously the joke about the book itself, which is inviting horrible reviews. You know, a cult classic. This is not <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Buckle up, get ready for a boring time. <laughs> you know? um, but uh, it's also the you know the name of the sort of package that she's offered, the, the classic, this idea that it's the original because the leader of this sort of um, club slash wellness cult who very much is adamant the entire time that it's not a cult um, because he's not keeping people there through coercion or persuasion. But it it is more cult-like than anything the goo passed off or let's say and, I, and um, also he's not paying anybody which i think and he's not paying anybody they're all there voluntarily right they bow to him so right. it's not great, it's not great. <laughs> if it's not <laughs> a cult it's on its harmonic pajamas like, yeah <laughs> yeah if it's not a cult it's like pointing in a cult direction it's like God yeah it's a little bit like it's not tv it's hbo you're like it's tv <laughs> yeah, it is so yes it's got cult but, um, potential it, it's, What's weird about it, and it, it is very revealing about what is wrong with me as a person, <laughs> as well as a writer, yeah. I don't think it's that weird. I think that the, the larger sort of point is that I wanted to write about romance, and I wanted to give it the literary treatment, or dating, or whatever you want to call it. And I wanted to give it a slightly more philosophical or sophisticated treatment than it normally gets. Um, but I sort of had avoided that for a really long time for what I think are obvious reasons, but I, where I feel like, you know, as a woman and especially someone who's written three books of narrative nonfiction essays, that stuff gets laid on me even when it's not true. So I thought, what well, stuff? if I make it true, What stuff gets laid Oh, out? she writes about dating, you know, a sort of like cute city-esque essays, you know, maybe at some point someone gets drunk, dances on a bar, falls down, forgets their credit card. I've never written anything like that. Actually, I did write about losing my wallet once, but it was about something else. The point is, it's never been this sort of like goofy, uh, or I don't fancy it uh, goofy. I, I also know it's not Kierkegaard, but you know, I, I like the idea of it not just being a comedy of manners that takes place in a major metropolis, you know, which which is fun and I enjoy those. Huge, you know, Whitstillman fan, <laughs> but I wanted to do some sort of um, 
some sort of engine to it, some sort of container to put all these different people, these different sort of relationships and dating from the past without just without it being a litany of complaints, frankly. And so part of that container, and I, I hate to say, you know, it's about the friends we made along the way, but it is about this group of people who used to work for a magazine called Modern Psychology, which is pretty clearly psychology today, but in the book it folds. <laughs> and uh, you have this group of coworkers uh, that know our guinea pig, our heroine, really well, and therefore are able to draw these different men towards her. But then the other sort of moving part of the book is the Golconda, as you said, it's a, you know, abandoned or derelict synagogue on the Lower East Side that this former editor-in-chief of this magazine has gutted and turned into a high-class cult slash club with mysterious, you know, financial backing. And they're using our girl as their guinea pig. And describing the inside of that place, is maybe the most fun I've ever had writing. I just had a blast. <laughs> Even the word Golconda makes, why does the word Golconda make me Oh, laugh? it's so horrible. Yeah. So, the, <laughs> so the reason why it's called the Golconda is, I mean, as you can tell from what I've said so far about the book, which is hopefully somewhat coherent, is that this woman now uh, throughout the book, once this experiment kicks in, if she steps within a five or six block radius of the synagogue, she will likely run into an X because of this sort of game-like thing they're running on her. And inside, in the conference room, they have a Magritte painting that everyone knows it, uh, even if you don't know the name of it, it is called the Golconda. But it is uh, a bunch of men, as opposed to one guy in a bowler hat, it's it's like they're raining, they're sort of floating slash raining over um, a sort of cityscape with a bright blue sky. And you've seen that, it's like a raining men portrait, essentially. And Magritte had... There's a lot of surrealism or surrealist references in the book. And Magritte had so many great titles for his paintings. The one with the apple, the one, I think is called something like Man of War. The rose in the tight room is called The Wrestlers. And I thought, so I worked it in reverse. I thought, oh, well, this is going to be good. And it's like, that painting is called the Golconda. And I'm like, oh, come on. That's <laughs> such an ugly thing. Because at first I was like, well, that'll be the title of the book. It's clear. And then I was like, there's no way. And I'm also not famous enough to teach people a word with my title. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> this isn't, that this is isn't, that is a very, that's a very rare error. That's very rare. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, I'm not going to. It's like some, no. <laughs> but I, uh, but then I found out the, name also it's from a um i think a 16th century citadel in in the middle of india and so the idea of this fortress as well as the painting just works actually pretty well so it turned out to be a bit of kismet it just sounds funny so that's why it's called the golconda it also just sounds like a nonsense name that someone would make up for a fake cult i think i liked the fact that it had this connection to india because the set the, the satirization of like new age wellness culture oh, yeah. in the yep. book. That is... was the other, other jackpot. Yeah. All right. I, I want to talk with you about this because as much as I like love to snicker at that whole world and I was like right on board with all of the satire in your book, I must also cop to the fact that I am their mark. If I read something online and it says, you know, do X, Y, and Z and you'll live to be 120 as it doesn't matter what it is almost, I will start adopting it and integrating it into my life. It is it, very easy for me to become convinced of, you know, 
whatever it is, these holistic so solutions. Susceptible to, to the idea of fixing yourself. I mean, as long as you don't click on those articles, because then you're going to get a lot of spam or something, then I think you can read them. It can drive you crazy because the it's like the goalposts are always moving. Like it's always changing in the diet. But you also live somewhere where like the, the sort of group average of wellness is higher in Los Angeles, the group average. So you can participate probably, I'm sort of speculating, but on, in a tremendous amount of it and still feel like you're not as crazy as your neighbor. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm like right? middle of the like, road. I'm middle of the road compared to some people but if here. You, yeah. We'll, we'll take you to Little Rock and see how middle of the road <laughs> you are. <laughs> With my raw, my, my 80% raw diet or whatever the fuck I'm doing now, you know, but I, uh, I am recovering as well. Macrobiotic. That was a thing. I Where'd know. that go? I don't know. Anyway. I, I, I never did macro. I never went there. You can satirize a lot of things that you're not you don't have to have a hundred percent familiarity and a hundred percent intimacy, but like, I'm just going to put a number on it. Like 70 would be a good percentage in <laughs> right. order to make fun of something in order to uh, make some sort of social commentary on it and to just dismiss it. You can't, you know, you can't really do that. I mean, mostly it comes out through the character of Chantal, who is the girlfriend. She's not in the book that much, but she was also, she was, the minor characters were very fun. To write yeah. In this I book. could feel the fun. Um, <laughs> You're like, I can feel the fun. I can feel the cruelty <laughs> beaming through the page. <laughs> Just the, as, as clear as your pores on a raw diet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she, you know, to know, it's it's a lot about like the Instagram culture, the raw diet, the, the oat milk, the almond milk, you know, in a way, whatever I write is going to automatically be behind. Um, and the, it's just a, choice to make that commitment and skewer something that's going to be a real moving target, which, you know, better people than me have done. Like, I feel like Brady Stanellis has done a great job of that throughout the course of his career. Um, Or even Joe Didion did it a lot where she's like, I'm just going to name the proper noun for this and you can get on board or you can not. Right. (laughs) Um, And sometimes it's alienating, but, you know, in context, if the context is sort of correct and effective, it's not. But so I just really enjoyed you know, just taking it very far. I mean, I didn't see, I saw a couple episodes, but not the whole thing of Nine Perfect Strangers. But it's my understanding that, uh, is it Leanne Moore? I'm going to mess her name. I don't even know what this is. I don't even know what this is. The woman who wrote Big Little Lies. Okay. um, Also wrote a book called Nine Perfect Strangers that I was adapted for series about um, some sort of, it's like you go and you're, it's basically, it's drug based. So basically you get families who have had, had some sort of trauma um, you know, a son killed himself, there's a divorce, whatever it is, and they go and she, you know, first it starts with, you know, drinking shakes in the woods and meditating. And then it turns out she's just giving everyone mushrooms I, I, or some sort of Oh, wait, drug. is this the one with um, Nicole Kidman? Yes. yes okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I saw and the trailer so, for that and I was like, this looks yeah. interesting. I mean, I don't, I, I fell off it after two episodes, but that doesn't mean anything. I have no attention span. So I feel like my version of that is not um, drugs, which is a bummer. <laughs> can't, can't rewrite the novel now. <laughs> like, but it's it's more uh, the social media and med- a little bit of the meditation, a little bit of the sort of what my parents would call, you know, woo-woo. There's a crystallarium, you know, where there's just a big room with an amethyst geode in this place, you know, and... But mostly it's about the manipulation of social media. So, like, the, the Golconda has all these people working for them that are like, you know, former search engine engine employees, like employee number one or two, at a quote unquote famous search engine, you know, former like IDF <laughs> or former, I'm just 
you know, like all these people that are just working to essentially manipulate how people, how these men are going to be drawn to the spot through the power of suggestion, a little bit through, you know, basically PI work, but a lot of it is through marketing and social media. And that's sort of how it functions, which is part of the reason why when people do talk, you talk about the sort of device of it, the magic, the speculative fiction, I'm, I'm flattered because I feel like I did try, do you know what I mean? To do something a little bit different, but I also don't see it in those genres. Cause I think it's very realistic. I mean, in the, in the novel, these packages, quote unquote, costs a minimum of, I think it's like 200, $250,000. I think if I had $5,000, I could put you and someone you don't want to see in a restaurant tonight. I don't think it would be hard, you know? That's, and it, but it, that's the thing about speculative fiction that's good is that it usually doesn't feel that far afield from reality. It feels like sure. haunting, satire feels, yeah. you know, it's got roots. It's like hauntingly plausible. And I think that the, you know, satire humor, the kind of send up that you're doing when it comes to wellness culture, there's always like a, like a tinge of like anger in it or like, <laughs> I mean, we're all fed up, right? We're fed up with social media. We're fed up with having our data sold and like something really creepy happened to me the other day where I was talking about a company to a friend and then like went to my, my phone and like went to the internet and there was like an ad for that company. You know how you feel like you're being listened to? Like yes. all that sort of oh, yeah. the six- Usually it happens to me with travel. You know, wow, New York is six hours from Iceland. It's weird I've never been there. And the phone is like, is it weird? I will fix that. You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it's like surveillance capitalism, which I think is yeah. kind of what your book touches there's on. There's a tremendous amount of that. Yeah. In addition to wellness, there's a lot of the surveillance capitalism is a good way to put it. I think we're just fed up with being told not to trust our instincts. Being told, you know, when Woody Harrelson says, you know, I'm eating raw now and it's great, <laughs> the instinct to eat nuts and fruit and not overcook your vegetables to the point where you you have to know that when you, you know, get like a, a baby carrot is not <laughs> a highly steamed baby carrot in your Chinese food is not the same thing as, as what you would get from corn. Like, you, you know all this. Right. Uh, and it's it's. I find it uh, not only creepy, but slightly infantilizing. You know, it's just like you're just ceding every aspect of your life to people who are making money off of it. And when you say, you know, oh, now our data is being sold. It's not your data, it's you. Right. You know, it's not what you look at. You're just another, you are physically another eyeball, pair of eyeballs that counts that, you know, we've got him manipulated and now we can manipulate this person however we want. You know, and so I just feel like... um, hand wringing about that you know i did 23 and me at some point and it was really funny because a lot of people were like oh i would never give my dna to some website i'm like you i everyone has everything already i mean not to be like you know on the cross about it but like please you know right. <laughs> take my wife <laughs> right. <I> just, <laughs> and so my thing was to just use it just like the humor in service to the plot in service to the story that i was trying to tell and see if it, because because it's not all. There there are things I've gotten out of the out of technology. I mean, I'm sure I've lost more than I've gotten. That's the only problem. But so it's it's sort of weaponized against her, but it ends up being something she can really use. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting to think about the ratio for all of us, you know, because it's not all bad. It's just a tool. These technologies, yeah, um, and it does improve our the quality of our lives in some respects. But 
so much of the nefarious part of it is kind of subsurface. You don't even realize it's happening, you know, like I, right. you're just going about your day and like your phone is eavesdropping on you or tracking your whereabouts or paying attention to every little move you make. And I um, tried not to get a smartphone for a really long time and I eventually had to because my speaker, uh, um, not my speaker, the, yeah, what I speak into, no, the microphone, whatever it is, the part where someone else would hear me speak. Right. <laughs> Obviously, we're very tech savvy over here <laughs> in the West Village. Um, uh, it fully broke. So I would call people and they wouldn't hang up on me because allegedly they couldn't hear me talking. <laughs> and the it was like a, not a flip phone. It was just like, like it's, it's, I never, I don't know, I could never get it again. It had this sort of sh- weird sheen to it. Maybe it was Nokia, unclear. Um, the company was going to charge me $500 to replace the speaker. And I almost, years later, wish I did it. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course, I was like, are you kidding me? And I said no and bought a smartphone. But I know people who only use Signal, who have no social media accounts, you know, and I I respect them in some ways, but I'm also like, can't you just do a little, do you, again, it's all about like the faith in yourself thing, you know? I mean, a lot of, not to bring it back to the book, but, or to bring it back to the book, there's so much about free will in the book and it's like, and self-control and she doesn't have, she could have said no to this experiment. You know, once it's revealed what's happening, she could have declined and she, her curiosity just overrides what she knows is good for her. And so she goes back every night again and again and again and becomes sort of addicted to it. And this is how we are with the internet. This is how we are with everything. You know, right. it's like, oh, you can't really, you can't just eat one chip. No, no. That's, and, the, that's the tagline for this novel. <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, I mean, this this is very much a book that is speaking to our relationship with tech, our fears about like our our appearance and our wellness like what is it like in your in your read of things what is it about this particular cultural moment i mean i guess some version of this stuff has probably always been with us but it seems like more and more pervasive than ever or like it has more mutations right. than ever like you skewer it's like diet culture beauty culture at one point somebody i want to say it's, uh, yeah chantal is like we've got to bring burning man out of the desert and into real life you know like that sentiment, you know, carries within it like so much. Like, what is it? Are, are we ameliorating pain? Are we, is, this, is it an expression of fear? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the deeper right. human stuff underlying like all of that? Oof. I mean, what's weird is if I totally knew the answer, I would uh, start a wellness company and make a zillion dollars. <laughs> you know, if I did, <laughs> I would become one of them. I have no qualms about uh, selling out humanity for my own nefarious purposes. I'm a writer. It's not, it's not a thing I worry about. Right. But, um, no, I think what's weird is I can only speak to, I don't know what goes through the minds of influencers. I don't know what goes through the minds of someone, you know, do you think after a while there's sort of a group think or a group jealousy where, you know, you have enough socialites seeing the success of another socialite who instead of waking up one day and designing handbags decides to, you know, create a 
line of CBD oil or juices or whatever it is. Right. And that's very much the, the character of Chantal. And, and what's funny is that sounds very rarefied because what you're asking about is humanity and not the socialites, but humanity listens to these people. And that, that's how things become big and then disseminated. So it actually does matter where um, the popularity behind these things come from, the celebrity endorsements, things like that. And I would say that no one is really immune to so some of our higher institutions, um, you know, I half blame the New Yorker. <laughs> the amount of, but, but what I I very much enjoy reading intelligent commentary and criticism on things that would not have been topics for the Atlantic, for the New Yorker, for NPR, for any of these places a very long time ago for Harper's, you know. But now it's like, oh, how are we using psychedelics in this way? And you know, let us you know pick apart the Real Housewives, or food as if it's opera. Um, and that's part of the fun in it. But it then there's, it has accidentally, I think, perhaps created, you know, it's a form of art, again, huge fan of those articles, but it's created this permissiveness, a permeating per permissiveness, where I do think it trickles down. And now people can speak about this crap, who are not New Yorker writers, who are not um, really invested in it, or educated in it as if it's high art. Like they don't, there's no shame anymore in being into your body. There's no shame in talking about wellness culture and what's good for you and adaptogen powders. And I'm like, you should be ashamed. <laughs> the reason you're not ashamed is because people who are much smarter are talking about it very publicly. So it's, it's, it's accidental. I don't think that was an, what, you know, was intended by Gwyneth Paltrow being interviewed on 60 Minutes or whatever. But it, it, it just, I, I think that's sort of what's happened. And then the other thing to blame, because why the hell not? It's always there, is the internet. Yeah. Well, why, I, the, why not? You know, that's how people get their information now is through photos. And a lot of the stuff is, frankly, extremely pleasing to look at. You know, if I said that, you know, the way I bettered myself was through meditation and reading, I don't know how to take a picture of that consistently and have it be interesting. We're like a matcha latte is kind of cute. You know, you're just, it's just like constantly there's a, a way little that it's, heart, it's a little heart. appealing. Yeah. Yeah. A little heart. Yeah. The point is it's just, it's, it's, I think it has been accidentally granted, um, a seriousness by sort of all sorts of major human beings and venues that it's this sort of um, echo chamber where it's, it exists so much, it's become so popular that a news organization or a major celebrity cannot ignore it. But then when they cover it, it just makes it worse. Right. And it's a big money deal. There's a huge market for oh, it. Oh, yeah. There's also, I haven't even mentioned anything about capitalism. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of it. I love how like there's like this sort of mystery financing for the Golconda and that the Clive character, who's the former editor-in-chief, who's now the founder and CEO of the Golconda, A, he doesn't pay anybody. B, he's loaded. He's just got, yeah. he's got like just endless money. Have you ever met a rich person? Yeah, right? It's like, where does the money come from? They're so cheap. And they're so cheap, yeah, usually. I mean, it's just mystifying. But I guess that's how you stay rich or something. But I want to talk with you about relationships, because that's also sure. what this book is about. And it's so strange to me and sort of like wistful it makes me wistful and sad to ponder the ways in which like human beings come together like have a relationship break up and then like usually like never really see one another again maybe you do 
but breakups are that's so sad <laughs> it's sad and it's weird it's weird to see another person's genitalia and then just never see them again right it's like oh strange. i'm not trying to take it like immediately below the belt literally but i just <laughs> i just don't know like it's a, it's one of the stranger it's very odd yes but yes go ahead well and i mean this book definitely speaks to that because she's kind of walking through this like kind of uh, it's like a fun house uh, like version of her past, you know. Every time she comes near the Golconda, she runs into one of her exes, like in person. That's a good way to put it. I'm stealing it. <laughs> okay, yeah, feel free. And I guess, like, it feels to me like this book was a way for you to try to kind of reckon with the strangeness of that. Uh, and it also felt to me like a. It's kind of like a book that's looking back on one's young adulthood. You know, because that's mm-hmm. the period in which we usually try on different relationships, if that's a way to put it. And then it also made me think about like the person that we eventually wind up with and why a certain relationship is sustaining and while others were not. You know, all these questions about compatibility and the sustainability of a relationship and what it actually means to be in a relationship with person, uh, with a person, right. like all this stuff was on your mind, no? Yeah, it, it- Incredibly. I mean, I think there's a part in the very beginning. It's actually, I think, when she, when Lola runs into her first ex-boyfriend and she doesn't know any, that's a thing that happens and it's not that strange. And she just doesn't know that it's a, a sort of cue ball break in some larger mystical um, experiment that she's being used for. And she's just sitting at a bar with the guy and she, you know, they both look down the length of the bar and they see a guy you know, drinking a fernet. Welcome to downtown New York. And uh, reading I don't even know what a Fernet is. It's just a, it's a alcohol. Is it, like, <laughs> is it a, a cocktail? Is it a cocktail? No, it's just a aperitif, I guess. I don't know. I don't. It's like um, I don't, I'm not very good with the cocktail lingo. Yeah. But it it doesn't. It's very um pungent, I guess, tasting. But anyway, so he's drinking, reading a book like it's a library and not a bar, and she just has this feeling of like, well, why can't I just mate with this freaking guy? Like, what difference does it make? At what point, when you're given so much choice, and like you said, normally it's the choice that youth and basic functionality give you, but sometimes, you know, the internet or or all these apps exacerbate it, I suppose. And she's just trying to find the balance between what she feels like, has she made mistakes? You know, is she supposed to be doing, is she making too big a deal? And she being very, very hard on Boots, her fiancé, for sort of not being enough when she doesn't know if she's enough, when she doesn't know what she actually wants. And so this is a way, I mean, this now I'm sort of veering into cliche category, but ter- territory, but there's only so many ways to say this stuff where she, she's sort of trying to figure out it's okay if she didn't get on the right boats or was pushed off certain boats over the course of her life. But can she just let go of that and realize that to be in a relationship with somebody you cannot look at it from a hot air balloon. Sorry, I have a lot of different travel analogies. It's <laughs> just a, painting a real Bob Rossi kind of portrait of, I'm getting of vertigo. romance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're never supposed to climb a mountain after you've been scuba diving. <laughs> never supposed to do it. <laughs> but um, yeah, is it? You can't just. She's in danger, as I think we all are, of the sort of narcissism or maintaining this distance and not actually looking at somebody and being like, "Am I going to let them change me?" And also, what good can I do them? What am I bringing to their life? And I think that's a more mature thought that she doesn't have or didn't have when she was younger. 
it's more like what can you do for me when you're younger you're like oh are you my type you know I don't I didn't like it that you left this wet towel on the bed or you made this horrible joke in front of my friends or I, I don't know anything and now it's a little more like well you know who are you around me am I making you better am I bringing out the worst in you and so I think she sort of learns basically a little late to be an adult throughout the book but what's funny is to me it's not that late she's 37 Actually, what's weird is she's like 38, I think, in the Finnish book and 37 in the galley. She's, <laughs> she's grown a lot. She <laughs> has. She has. It's been quite a process I for her. There's some logical reason. It was like a fact-checking reason that had to do with like a movie she had seen or a bar that was open in New York in the early aughts. And I'm like, oh, shit, she would not have been there. So it seemed like harmless to change it at the time. And now I actually don't know how old she is. I think it's 37 or 38. But, but listen, I, but listen, yeah. some people... But that's part of her shame. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's part of her shame. But I don't think it really should be. Some people never figure this stuff out. and I know, I know, but it's actually really funny. But I think that's part of her... <sighs> I mean, some of it, there is a line or something. At some point, she talks about getting smaller denominations from the romance ATM than other people. You know, you know people who have been in one relationship, two relationships, who are serial monogamists, whatever it is. She's more of like a serial people collector, all these sort of interesting characters of her past some more interesting than others so i guess i also wanted to pay tribute to anybody who feels like it's not just your choice it's also the luck of the draw you know there's this this sort of narrative that's almost kind of shares a border frankly if it's not shoehorning it in too much with the wellness narrative this narrative that like this is all in your control right you, you take take back your body eat the raw food fix everything but like that analogy you know there you might have the bad kind of cholesterol you might have there might be just certain things in your body that you're predisposed to and i do think that the universe as it were especially the universe of cult classic works like this where you just it, there's a lot of discussion about free will and a lot of it is just what crossed her path Obviously, she didn't want to date somebody who turned out to be a jerk, who made off-color jokes. She didn't want to date somebody who would, you know, sit her down and say, actually, I need to screw a lot of people. Are you cool? <laughs> you know, and I just, like, there's all sorts of, you know, these characters. And, you know, it's a comedy. But I do think that there's a lot of truth in her being okay with not having perfect closure, her being okay with not having perfect taste, her just sort of forgiving herself for a lot of this. And I feel like... The, those parts of the book, like especially her interiority, address maybe I'm imagining this to be true. You can, you know, you can choose to disagree, but I'm imagining it's like you sort of pressing back or trying to write as a corrective a book that cuts against the way relationships are often and love relationships and romantic relationships are often portrayed by the culture. You know, there's a lack of yes. sophistication to it and a lack of depth. And I think it can mess with people's heads because it puts them into the game, myself included, frankly, from childhood. Like, if you think about the, the diet of movies and television shows that, for the most part, inform our understanding of what love relationships are supposed to be like, you sort of enter the game as a young adult with a pretty warped view of how things are supposed to go, no? Right. You're like, I don't even have the arm muscles to hold a boombox that long over my head. <laughs> you know, I don't have the... It's wherewithal. There is a there is a Lloyd Dobler joke in the book, I think, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There yeah. is actually. I mean, you gotta you I'm nodding along because for me, my generation, I'm forty six. I cannot tell you how hard I glommed on to Lloyd Dobler 
in my youth because he was like not a good athlete. He was sort of into kickboxing, sport of the future, Mm -hmm. but like not like the future. (laughs) And he was just sort of like a likable guy, but there was nothing like he was not great at anything. It seemed like, and I was like, "That's me," (laughs) you know. Like, I I wanted to be like him. I felt like. But what I see from that movie is. I mean, of course, Lloyd Dobler is, I mean, that's, that is that movie, right? The fact that the other person in that movie is called Diane Cord, I, I don't know how many people necessarily would get the second answer, right? You know, <laughs> um, I mean, most people who know the movie, but it's just not uh, top of mind the way Lloyd Dobler is. But what I see is uh, sort of the original sort of kind of manic pixie dream girl in Diane Cord and very annoying. She doesn't offer much. She's kind of annoying, and he's breaking down her door to, yeah. to get to her. And so that's a weird lesson, you know, for men and women alike. You know, and I I do feel like, um, but there's the sense, you know, that movie ends where they're on the airplane waiting for the, you know, the ding of that she can unfasten her seatbelt because she's nervous of about flying, and they're literally flying off together, you know, uh, in a way that is. It's definitely more clear cut than, let's say, The Graduate, which is, you know, that wonderful scene where they're, you know, instead of an airplane, it's the back of a bus and that amazing expression of what now. Right. Um, So it's almost like we had the ability to offer more nuance to Happily Ever After. And it's like we lost it. (laughs) Like, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the... um, like the cave paintings in the south of France for any reason, but, you know, these 13,000-year-old paintings of reindeer in the south of France because, you know, it was before the Second Ice Age, and you see this perspective in the animal's legs, and I think, well, I thought we got perspective during the Renaissance. I'm like, oh, we had it, and whoops. We, we lost, lost it. it. We it lost it. It took us many hundreds of years <laughs> to find it again, even thousands. And I guess it feels like that, and so I do feel like, when I think of this book, I don't think it's reinventing the wheel. I just think it's a wheel we haven't used in a while, which is like, yeah, figuring out how to love somebody without completely disrespecting and disowning your entire past. Because we are told that like, oh, well, when you meet the perfect person, you won't even remember what all that was about and it will all be worth it. And I don't think either of those things are necessarily true. All you can do is just work on it. It's you always know? there with you. I mean, people that yes, you... but it's it's a weirdly like self. It's like we're encouraging, you know. They're like for for my own life without being too, you know, like you know this narrator is <laughs> she has her her messiness dialed up to a very high frequency. <laughs> um, but there's definitely people who, you know, have hurt my feelings or who I've hurt in the past, and you know, there are parts of Lola that certainly when she screams, you know, that, yeah, I remember these people because I'm not concussed. And I remember what they did or what I did because you're not concussed. It doesn't mean you're holding on to them. It doesn't mean you want them or they want you. It's just like, and it's this weird encouragement that like you're seeing. It's like, if you still have any sort of feelings or opinions about these people, then that scene is a, uh, hindrance or a blockage to having any kind of closure and moving forward and i just strongly disagree with all the therapists of america (laughs) i just don't think i don't think i don't think you can ever fully like disavow your past or cut yourself off from it it's always going to be part of you and i'm also kind of mystified i know it's totally possible to have a breakup where you're like friends and like I've seen people like break up with somebody that they dated for years, and then they just maintain like a buddy relationship. They go to I each have other's. A of those yeah, too. 
but I'm a little They're... mystified by it. I'm like, wow, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't usually work like that. I think it's healthy like to have a couple. I think it's, you know, it's always good to have a mix. You know, friendship works the same way. Friendship works the same way. So I feel like when you meet somebody and their only friends are from college, some sort of flag goes up in me. I don't even know what the flag is pointing to. I don't know what color it is. It's just a flag. And similarly, when you meet someone whose best friend that they're totally obsessed with, they've known for a year and a half, I feel like that's weird too. <laughs> I feel like that you got to have some sort of mix. Just as a human being walking the earth, I'm pretty happy with the fact that I'm friends with some people I used to date and some I just wish well, some I don't really i just want their like order to get screwed up at a restaurant i don't know i don't want them to be hit by a bus just, <laughs> just some minor inconveniences would never be... get their favorite food again right. <laughs> fair <laughs> you fair. know but it's not something that keeps i think once you let let all that in and maybe this is what i was trying to say with the novel when you stop giving yourself such a hard time about, oh, I shouldn't wish anyone ill, or I, I don't know if I should be friends with this person, or I feel so guilty I broke up with this person. Once you just sort of give yourself a break, you can relax. So that's why there is something towards the end of the novel, there's this sort of idea of perhaps closure is the lack of it. And for me, that's a very freeing idea. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, As yeah. opposed to beating yourself up about the past. Oh, yeah. I mean, just like maybe recognizing reality that you're never going to be able to like fully close every single and door. And it makes you more into whatever you're engaged in at the moment, you know, hmm. I think. Also, I'm not I should should, should maybe state for the, uh, the listener that uh, this has been Esther Perel. <laughs> so this is my podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Let me talk to you about New York because this is a very... This is very much to me like a New York novel. And yeah. uh, there's a lot of love for the city in the book and like the city's culture, kind of like a defiant, almost like vibe. Um, was that inten- intentional? How do you mean defiant? Just, just like, I don't know, or just like this kind of, you know, I feel this way about Los Angeles. You live in a place that's sort of like a cultural capital or has a lot of eyeballs on it everybody's got an opinion and it can take a lot of heat and you can be like oh you live in manhattan you know oh you know you live in la and i don't like to get into those arguments but i can kind of bristle at oversimplifications or i don't know well because it's your home i mean that's what's so strange like there's not a parallel one (laughs) that you have i mean this is this is your home and so it's kind of funny when people trash it because you're like, I literally do not come to your literal house and trash the house. Right. <laughs> and say, well, you know, why the hell do you live here? And, oh, it's so annoying. You know, I mean, it's like, you, and so I think that, I mean, what's weird is the novel was handed in or finished in early March of 2020. So there's zero nostalgia in the book. It's like this accidental love letter. You know, there's this idea that everybody's like oh you know it's like new york before the pandemic and you know it'll take you back and i'm like i never left i was just that's that it's a and without uh 
I don't think this is patting myself on the back. It's just sort of an observation, I hope, which is just that I assume there would be a lot of me, a lot of novels that were set just before the pandemic that got in under the wire. And I came extremely close. I mean, like, really, I'm, I'm like sort of this like straggling penguin at the end, of, <laughs> the end of a row, just being like, okay, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> almost, you know, I almost fell off the iceberg, but here I am in March, 2020. <laughs> and it doesn't really seem to be happening that much. Like, of course, there are novels that are uh, coming out that include the pandemic, that have nothing to do with the pandemic, that are nonfiction about it. But I feel like hopefully that's a weird thing that helps differentiate this one. But the, the, the it comes when you were asking, you know, before about humor. The New York stuff, I never feel like I have to dial back. And it is a weird decision in some ways because I recognize that if you are someone who's coming into this with an opinion about New York, about it being rarefied or insular or completely delusional, which it is very often, there's a lot of stuff that people say, oh, you know, only in New York kids. And I'm like, nope, people run into their ex-boyfriends in Minneapolis. It absolutely happens. You know, <laughs> right, not, right. Nope, that's, that's not just us. You know, I mean, I'm sure we're, yes, we're very special snowflakes, but, like, it's not, <laughs> but, but it's still this amazing very special place and I think to avoid writing about it eventually would have been as futile as avoiding writing about romance and I'm like how about instead of avoiding it I give it as much of a royal treatment as I as I can but it doesn't actually feel that consciously New York to me because it's just me writing about my home right um so how, I would how say long have you least... lived there how long have you lived there um <laughs> uh 23 years Wow, so that's no, your home. That's I, not true. Is that true? That's true. You're like you're like I don't know, lady. <laughs> Am I allergic to peas? Like I don't. We're not an old couple. I don't know the answer to your question. Um, but yeah, it is my home. I don't. It's not like I have a a parallel one, which believe me became very apparent during the pandemic. That this is my my apartment with no outdoor space is is what I got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you live in a certain place. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but I've lived in LA for about the same amount of years. Twenty. Where were you before? Colorado. Ah, uh, where? Boulder. Beautiful. Yeah. Very fancy. Very, I mean, very expensive now. I know. Well, I, that wasn't. I went to college there, so oh, I was. Okay, got it. it was sort of like it was. I mean, it was much more provincial in those days. But right, right after I left, it started to turn into like a little yeah. tech bubble and tech money. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh. So. But I sorry, came, go ahead. I came to LA. I've lived here for a long time. Sort of have had the conversation with myself endlessly. Like, am I really? I guess I'm here. I'm not going to leave, you know? And then at a certain point, it sort of becomes home. And I've developed a lot of affection for it. And I guess maybe that's been the case for you. Do you feel like you're a lifer in New York, I guess is the question. Right. Do, Do you, I feel like I couldn't leave? Or just like, I, I mean, at some point you just go, okay, I guess this is going to be my life. This is where it's going to be, like in this place, I think. I guess the trick is to, if you're, if you're doing it with that tone, <laughs> not to, to attack you, but the, the, the resignation should never be there. Right. Not for a place like New York and not for a place, frankly, like, like Los Angeles, you know, they're like, eh, all right, I guess, you know, sort of, I think I would move if I had good reason to. So, I mean, I've done some screenwriting, I've sold shows uh, none of which you've seen because none of uh, which none of them have been made, probably because of my grammar. But <laughs> uh, it's not I, unless it was in production and also on the second season. <laughs> right, right. I think that's when I would move. In my first novel, 
in the class, there's a character, a guy who moves from New York to LA to become sort of a minor TV writer, a struggling screenwriter who's constantly trying to make connections and has a lot of ego, but also not a lot of success. Um, and he's just sort of horrified, I think, about being, I think I say something like another person writing center space dialogue at Earth Cafe, you know, it's very, <laughs> I don't want to do that. No. <laughs> and there's a little bit of a sheen to being, um, you know, it's not quite the way it used to be in like Fitzgerald's time, although he didn't have much success, but um, a little bit of a sheen of coming from the East Coast and the concept of like, that I've, I'm fresh off a trip to a cabin in the woods with patches on my elbows and I can get away with murder because of this. I can be like, I don't know, this is so confusing. Like, <laughs> I, like because you know, I'm just reading the Paris Review. <laughs> <laughs> What's a step? <laughs> I just, I feel like, um, but so I would move for, for those kind of reasons, but I can't see, you know, in all these scenarios in which I'd move to, you know, a huge fan of Paris, huge fan of Austin, huge fan of, uh, LA actually. Now I can't see a scenario in which I would move and not be tethered to New York. And therefore I, that's also a rich person scenario. So several things have to happen. Like yeah. I'm not going to go and be like, you know what? I've never, I've never lived in Tokyo. Let's see if I can make it. I do think I'm a little resigned on that department where I'm like, oh, I'm good. Like I don't, there are certain things. I'm 43. I think I, I could do anything. I don't want to skydive. I'm going to die without skydiving and not from it. <laughs> right. You know, it's fine. Right, right. <laughs> like, and so there's certain, so, so, but for New York, I just, sorry, that was a long way uh, around. I, I just can't, it's like weird to enumerate like the many charms of New York, but I do feel like I can't imagine not being tied to this place a little. And it, uh, maybe this is not to shoehorn in the, the character of the book a bit, but you know, for a long time I felt bad about that in a strange way because I grew up in White Plains and this is my backyard and not to be all Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin but there are parts of White Plains where you can see the city. Uh, <laughs> right, right from there. your from your yard. From my house, yeah. <laughs> so, throwback reference. <laughs> so I felt like, is this the lazy choice? Like this choice that is so difficult for so many people. I mean, my God, you know, you think about Joan Didion writing in Goodbye to All That about, you know, the, not knowing what bridge she's driving over, not knowing to, who to call about the air conditioning unit not working. And I just never had that. And, you know, this was not my Xanadu. This was my backyard. And so it's scary because moving to a city is scary and you have to make your own way. And uh, my parents didn't have money. But I knew people and I had come to the city when I was a kid. And so I always felt like, Oh, is this lazy? And then you just sort of are like, well, it's also the greatest place on earth. So yeah, it's a great city. What can I do? It's not my fault. It's so good. No, no. I mean, I, I love, I mean, it's always fun to visit. I haven't been there in too long. The pandemic, I feel like sort of screwed things up, but it's a great place well, to be. Well, it was great for us. We loved it. Um. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I actually <laughs> thought, I thought about New York a lot during the pandemic, like places where people live in apartments yeah. and stuff like that had to add an, had added a dimension. Well, what's weird is that even if you live in a nice place, if you don't have a doorman, you, every time you leave your house or and at first, you know, we didn't know how this thing was spread. You're touching a door in addition to your own that, I don't know, uh, at least 20, probably 150 other people have touched and all the people they've touched. So it was just impossible to even leave your house without, 
yeah. you know, like have a cup of coffee outside, stuff that like you guys probably take for granted. But the one thing that I sort of never took for granted was genuinely the sense of community and wildness um, that we had, which everyone I've talked to in LA, it sounds um, like you guys really went into individual pods of family and sort of temporarily not abandoned each other, but just sort of disconnected from each other. Right. And while we didn't have the option, that wasn't great for us from an epidemiological perspective. <laughs> Socially, I think it was a bit better to see people on the street, to agree to take a walk in the park, to wave to somebody, even though you know you recognize people's foreheads more than you would think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, is my forehead so obvious? I guess. <laughs> um, so I do think that that's something we had a little, a slight leg up. You know, what we lacked in vitamin D, we made up for in saying hi to each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit like about sure. craft. Uh, yeah. You know, you have made a name for yourself in uh, creative nonfiction. I mean, you've also written a novel before, but I just want to hear you talk about the difference. I think listeners who are writerly might be curious to know, you know, if the approach differs, like is one harder for you than the other? Does one bring you more joy than the other? You know, like what is it like for you to work on a novel versus working on your essay collections? Well, this novel brought me a tremendous amount of joy, but also I started in 2017, which, you know, when you think about like the Donna Tarts or the, you know, Robert Caros of the world, I'm... <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you something to cry about. You know, it's just... A, not a short, you know, not a long time frame. Um, but I think there are moments of joy in both. And there are also moments um, just from a, like you said, craft perspective. Uh, there are only so many ways to have someone, whether it's yourself, uh, someone real or a made up person, turn a doorknob and open the door. So it, it, there are only so many ways you can describe things. So it's sort of on a kind of macro level or it doesn't, it's very similar but you just have to live with it for so long. Essays end all the time. Right, <laughs> right. They just end. Whereas I feel like that you just get one big ending and just you really have to commit um, to the story, to commit to watching it grow, to watering this plant day after day after day and maintaining it. And so that can be kind of a drag. It's harder for me to write fiction, which is sort of the other half of your question. I feel like it feels like showing off it, or it feels like more like, a different kind of performance at the talent show. Like, would you rather read poetry at the talent show or sing and juggle at the same time? Like this feels like sing and juggle at the same time. And in a way it's like, well, this is what it looks like when I'm really trying. And it's not that nonfiction is not me putting in a, a tremendous amount of effort to those books, but it's a completely different brand of effort. And the sort of impetus behind them is external. It's not necessarily I mean, yes, it is me musing about what is something I've noticed in the world, but it's still external, that thing that I've noticed, that trend, that feeling, the that or that actual story that I'm telling an incident, whereas this is all coming from my banana skull. And so it has the potential to be more embarrassing somehow to me than nonfiction. But, you know, I did it anyway <laughs> is there one that you is there one that you hold in like higher importance in your mind like do you aspire to be considered one or the other more um you know the wall street journal called me a novelist the other day and i laughed 
I was like, okay. <laughs> if you say so. If you say so. <laughs> Sir, whatever you are, you know, like, yeah, I just, and I, um, but I don't, I think I used to, um, aspire more to fiction writing. It's what I wanted to do. Like when I was, a when I was in college and I was writing short stories, I wasn't writing nonfiction. And so for a long time, I was almost like those Columbia MFA grads where I had the same sort of attitude towards it where I'm like, well, this is me sort of, um, showing off at something that is a little bit easier and comes a little more natural to me. And I think a lot of people think this, they think that if something comes natural to them or naturally to them, it's not as uh, rigorous or as difficult or as worthy as the thing that's very, that's hard. So like, I think some of the things that I can do are no big deal. But then if I go out to dinner with you and you calculate the tip with, you know, very easily while we're talking, I think you should win a Fields medal. <laughs> <laughs> hardest person I've ever met so just sort of easily impressed by the the sort of road the you know the grass on the other side so I think I will forever think that a novel is more difficult and sort of more worthy of consideration than nonfiction in a really weird way but that's I, I also at the same time recognizing recognize that as my own problem I don't think that's true yeah, I feel I feel like they're I, I like I recognize what I'm saying is just like just an honest answer to what I think. But I obviously I mean, I will be going back to nonfiction after this. Maybe yeah, maybe you're like, that's going to be you. You kind of alternate okay, between one. the two. You can do both. And yeah. I, I feel like why do we think we have to sort of make rules about this stuff? You know, I feel like I often see people. Most, a lot of people can do. I mean, Zadie Smith does both. I mean, I, I, that's weird that that's like the only name that popped into my head. Ian Fraser. My God, Ian Fraser, that guy, so funny, such a funny guy, and wrote Travels in Siberia. You know, um, people, people. I, I think we're getting better at not forcing people to stay in their lanes as much artistically as we used to be. Or to, or to like grade this stuff, you know, to make rules about what's good and what's bad and what's better and what's worse. And it's like, no, this is maybe just you expressing yeah. your taste or whatever, but that's just you. Or you talking about what you happen to be good at. Like, shouldn't that be well, enough? That's the, it should be, yeah, it should just be best in group, not best in show for all the dogs, right? There should be no best in show. It should just be best in group and that's good. And then you have these completely different breeds compete against each other. And then you get this stupid bitch that wins. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was too easy. <laughs> like, uh, some award, you know? <laughs> so what about your work habits? Like, uh, okay. are you somebody writing every morning at the same exact time with the same exact, like, cup of coffee? Or is it a more haphazard than that? I'm extremely motivated by fear. So I wake up, I, I, I write all the time and at weird times. Um, so you would think that fear would actually cause more organization and instead it sort of scatters things. So I try to write in the morning with just some idea, not so much that I'm so fresh and brilliant in the morning, but that I'm more useless in the afternoon, you know? Right. Um, but then I usually have a, a spurt around five or six and then, you know, I try to read, answer emails in between, be in the world a little bit. I mean, one of the pleasures of writing fiction is that, yes, obviously you need to have lived a life to write about it you know it's sort of cliche here but um but mostly you need to read to write fiction and uh that's true of nonfiction too you know obviously this is not cut and dry for for either genre or category but 
I don't feel like I have to go out and answer too many emails and, and be that uh, productive a part of society when I'm writing fiction. It, it sort of uh, brings out my more hermity tendencies, which is good because I'm a naturally hyper-social person and I love it, but it can be very exhausting. So I, uh, I feel like fiction gives me more of a reprieve from that than nonfiction. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I write, I write at this desk in this, in this tiny little kitchen where there's, you know, windows, but mostly facing a wall, which is really punishing, but I just can't write with a view. Right. It feels too, um, I, I don't know. I think it's unnecessary. My but, ego is fine. Let's keep it in check with just like facing a wall. I don't need to overlook, you know, the Caspian Sea. No, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, what are you doing? You're, you're then you're looking at the sea. I mean, do you really need to like look at the sea to get inspiration? But like, mostly you're just looking at a screen. You look at it for a break. I mean, the one thing you do need is like a little bit of a break. Like I said, I do have windows. I'm not actually sitting in like a like chained to a radiator and like a kidnapped <laughs> tiny. <laughs> Send help. <laughs> can't believe I'm getting a signal in here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, but I, so you need it to just look outside to refresh your brain. I mean, not to uh, go back to wellness, but I read somewhere that it improves your mood by some, I don't know, mis- mystery percentage to just look up at the sky twice a day. Okay, here I go. I'm doing it. Yep. I know. Seriously, <laughs> I just told you that you're done. I mean, that's an easy one, right? Yeah. But it, that's one that also makes complete, you know, that does not seem like bull. How could that not be true? Right. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Of course it is. <laughs> so, you know, j- by that sort of basic common sense principle, you want something to take a break and look at. But if it's too, like, just the, if it's too grandiose, I, c- I can't work. Yeah. I had difficulty when I did go to like, when I went to Yado, I had difficulty. It took me about a week to write anything significant because I felt like a cartoon of myself. You know, here I am, writer girl, writing. Yeah. Better be smart. Better at be a, good. At a place called Yado. Like, let me take a break and go walk the grounds. Or I, I've not yeah. been there, but I imagine it's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful and it's wonderful. And I ended up being very productive there, but it took me a while to get into the swing of things because I had to get over the hump of artifice uh, that I felt in myself or the the sort of fraudness that I felt being there. I bet too you have to slow down a little bit. You come out of New York City and then suddenly you're in this bucolic yeah. sort of like, uh, yeah. it's like a retreat center, you know? Like, I've, I've found this, that you shift environments that radically and it takes you a while to wind down or, or vice versa, yeah. to wind up. You go from the country. I remember when I moved to LA from Boulder, I was like, everyone is moving so fast. <laughs> uh, and then eventually I got used to it. And now I guess I'm one of them, you know, moving have fast. You ever, have you ever bought a goldfish? I mean, when I was a kid. Yeah. Do you remember? <laughs> you have them in the bag. Yeah. And then you're not supposed to just cut the bag and dump them into the water. You're supposed to put them in, in the bag, into the water until the temperature, so they don't get shocked. Oh, really? I didn't know this. The temperature uh, of both sets of water aligns. So you keep them in the bag for a couple hours in the water and then cut it. Look at you. You with see your, where I'm going with this. Yes. Look at you with your expertise on goldfish. I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> I do. I do. I had a goldfish that a friend once was uh, cat sitting for me. I have a cat as well. And he hadn't really, he was very excited by the sense of responsibility. And this was an adult man, <laughs> yeah. Just, but it was almost like a 13 year old boy who had been like, okay, I got you. Know. <laughs> and he texted me, he knew when I was getting home, you know, and he's like, I left everything really neat. I did the dishes. I'm like, oh, you didn't have to do that. You know, this exchange. He's like, I hope everything's okay. I'm like, I'm sure it's great. 
thank you. I walk in, the cat is thrown up everywhere. I don't know why. And the goldfish is dead. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't have the heart to tell him. <laughs> I'm like, everything's fine. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, last thing I want to ask you is about screen adaptation stuff. Like this definitely feels like the kind of book that could potentially translate. Has there been any consideration of that, well, like either on your part or on the part of some TV or movie studio? Yeah, I don't know what I'm allowed to say, and so, um, uh, but it has been optioned, and I will be writing the screenplay. Oh. So I'm excited because one of my favorite things to write, and I think, I hope it's apparent in the book, and I hope it's also not the expense of other qualities the book could have, but is dialogue. I I very much enjoy writing dialogue, and I've, I've done it before, but specifically with this book, there's something about the characters do feel very different to me, and there's something about the way they sort of banter that I'm sort of I'm looking forward to revisiting, perhaps slowing down in spots, you know, or just like in, turning up the volume on different qualities of the characters in a different form. Because normally you're like, it's the dream, right, to have something you write optioned but then if you have to do it you have to i mean again <laughs> good good problem to have right right <laughs> when when you are given the opportunity to do it the actual practice of it though is redoing something you just did so you know i can't stress enough that i'm not complaining about this but it's imagine you know you built a house and you painstakingly built this house and then someone says you know okay but just now make it in clay somewhere else or now make a smaller version of it and you're like can I build a different house? Nope, same house. <laughs> so, yeah, so, it, yeah. so it feels a little strange. But then once you get into it, it's very, um, very familiar. So I'm working on it. I'm working on it right now. And it's it's so far so fun for me. I will see if anyone else is interested. But Well, I mean, and it's like, the, it is a little bit of a different beast. You probably do have to make some changes, right? It's not exactly well, yeah. one for one. Like you're tweaking no, it to fit. No, and movies that are one for one. The only time I think that's really worked... Um, I remember, I think, I read an interview with the Coen brothers at some point about No Country for Old Men. And they were like, we didn't do anything. We no. just, I've read just that book. McCarthy being like, hey, friendo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've read that book and it is astonishingly like one for one. Like it's really all there. It's it's really yeah, all there. It's just, really one for one. Like just, I was like, you guys just like swept it up into a dustpan and then, you know, unloaded the dustpan on final draft <laughs> yeah but Good for you <laughs> i watched that i watched that movie it's one of those movies maybe this is a guy thing but i watch that movie every time i'm flipping channels and it's on like i absolutely love the I think it's of, a guy thing it speaks to the fact that you flip channels like, i feel like <laughs> it's a it's a cord you're like not a cord cutter no like, not yet channels to flip is I'm, like, I'm, I'm hanging on to my direct tv but i yeah. uh i watch that movie i love the the dialogue i love the it's language fantastic. in it it's fantastic yeah, and it sucks you into the world of it, into the world of the sort of logic of it, um, which can sometimes be great. The only time I've had that happen and have it be a weird experience is once New York Magazine did this, uh, I guess it was a sort of bracket of sorts, you know, a la the NBA of different dramas or different shows of what was the best show of the past 25 years. And I was happy to be asked towards the end. I felt bad for whoever had to write an essay pitting uh you know buffy the vampire slayer against deadwood i'm like why <laughs> just why <laughs> and so by the time it got to me 
um, I had to do that. Like it was just luck of the draw. I'd, I'd already agreed to do it. I had to do the Sopranos versus Breaking Bad, and I thought I'm going to get murdered on the internet no matter what I do. But especially since I had not seen Breaking Bad, and also the Sopranos had finished and it hadn't. I'm like, this is incredibly unfair and insane. But it meant that I watched. Sorry, this is a long story. So I meant I watched all of Breaking Bad. I guess it was like three or four seasons over the course of a weekend. And when I did leave my apartment, I really felt I was going to knock over a bodega. <laughs> like, I really felt like I was like, should I do drugs like a bunch? Yeah, yeah. And, every, and just I felt, um, I hate this term, but I don't know how else to put it, this sort of uh, badassery welling up to my eyeballs, you know? <laughs> and No Country for Old Men has the same effect on me a little bit, where I'm just like, what if the world was just like this? Yeah, yeah. Same. <laughs> yeah, makes me like want to talk like Tommy Lee Jones too, just like yeah. That, I guess that's what I mean. The, that dialect. Yeah. Uh, I watched Breaking Bad just recently, or like the first three seasons while excellent. I while I, I had, picked The Sopranos, which but it's excellent. <laughs> yeah, while while I watched COVID, or while I, I had my broken knee and COVID, I was just like completely useless. I was like, okay, I've never seen Breaking Bad. This is a huge like oh, gap no. in my cultural knowledge and i got through three seasons and then i started started to get a little bit more mobile and i haven't gone back this is a quirk to my character wow i can get like three seasons deep in a really engrossing show and just never go back to it it's a lot i think when it was on uh i don't remember if it was uh bingeable when it was on i mean obviously it was by the time i watched it but was there a bit of a suspense you know what I mean? I think that if maybe you had watched it in its uh, sort of natural exoskeleton of not being streamed, like if you would, then you would want to go back to it. Maybe like yeah. we've lost a little something in, um, aside from basic patience, uh, <laughs> in not wanting, you know, you're not having a little wanting more in what we consume. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll, I mean, eventually probably I'll find myself somewhere and yeah. i'll watch well it makes me feel it. better for picking the sopranos if you haven't gone back to i mean <laughs> which i, I also like, have which i also haven't like, seen this idiot and i'm like i i well yeah it's the only time i've gotten like a real deluge of you know why don't you curl up and die kind of comments <laughs> over yeah. the sopranos or over breaking bad i guess it would yeah be. i should be lucky as a, as a woman walking this earth that that's the worst i ever got yeah <laughs> we'll see there's still time there's still time well uh, I'm happy to talk with you. It's great to see you, even you you know, over you. the transom. Congratulations on this novel. Uh, are you. you are you working? I guess you're working on the adaptation of it. Are, is there any other book in the works that we should know about? Um, I'm also working on a nonfiction book about grief, uh, which sounds like a real bummer, and it is, but it also <laughs> is kind of funny. Um, called "Grief Is for People," that should come out probably end of next year, if not the year after, but. It will come out shortly since I just got edits back. It's almost done. Oh, it's okay. So it's like in yeah, the can, yeah. basically. Yes, I'm not like when I say working. Yeah, it's. it's uh, but it hasn't been scheduled, as they say, in other places in the publishing industry. People know what scheduled means, but it's <laughs> not been scheduled yet. Is it an essay collection, or is it just like a long form nonfiction piece? It's interesting because it's not. Uh, it's it's the closest I've ever written to something I would maybe call memoir. But it's five parts, and it follows the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. Even though those are sort of you know, they blend. You mix and match them. Things go up and down. But for narrative purposes, they're sure as shit are five <laughs> stages of, of grief. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, but it's about um, it, they sort of 
increase as the book goes on in terms of the different types of grief. And essentially, even though there are five parts, it's three different things. It's a, a burglary, the death of a very good friend of mine, and then COVID. Oh. Yeah. Grief is for people. Grief is for people. I'm like- very... It's weird, weird feeling to be excited about something that's so, so sad. And it's also very funny to have been editing this book while not, I couldn't work on both at once from scratch. That would be an impossible scenario. But to sort of be, have my hands touching both around the same time period, because I I feel like cult classic is like the, you know, not that there's not darkness and light to both of them, but like is the cheery child. Right, right. (laughs) And then I'm like, I just, I see the, you know, the publication is imminent and, and I see the way people are reacting to it and I'm very happy about it, but I'm also like, oh man, just wait. Just wait. (laughs) You thought I was, you thought I was all rainbows. I got some granite for you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sloan, uh, Congrats on all of the above. We'll look forward thank to you. Thank you. It's so nice to see you. Thank you. Yeah, we'll look forward to uh, we'll we'll look forward to reading Cult Classic. Uh, those of us listening, and then we'll look forward a bit further in the distance to uh, just being completely flattened by grief is for people. So fun. <laughs> Life right. is a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> good to see you. You too. Have a good one. All right, folks. There we go. That is. Sloan Crosley, and her new novel is called Cult Classic, available now from MCD FSG. You can find Sloan on the internet at sloancrosley.com. You can also follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at AskAnyone. Again, the novel is called Cult Classic. Go get your copy right away. Get two copies while you're at it. The Other People podcast is offered freely the entire archive of this show almost 800 episodes and counting is made available to you the listener free of charge it's a listener supported show if you want to help keep this thing going please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod you can support this show for as little as one dollar a month just throw a buck in the hat every month It's easy, and if you have greater means, you can make a greater contribution. As you move up the scale, you can even get stuff. There's uh, other people gear, there's a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a tote bag, book club subscription, and so on. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to buy my new novel, that would be great. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there now for MIG Publishing in a paperback ebook or there's an uh, audiobook edition too that's available from tantor media and highbridge audio i am the narrator of the audiobook so go get a copy of be brief and tell them everything if the mood strikes you if you would like to email me the address for the show is letters at other let me know what you think don't forget to get the other people app it's free other ppl with brad listy search for it by name wherever you get your apps the other people archive is also available on youtube did you know that so if you're a youtube person go to youtube search for the show by name other ppl and subscribe to the youtube channel it's free uh, if you want to rate and review the show, that would be ideal. Rate the show and review it wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, too. 
But those ratings and reviews help the show find new listeners. It helps the algorithm do something. You know how that works. So I've got some good uh, conversations in the pipeline. Happy summer. It's almost summer, I guess, officially, but it feels like summer is here. So I hope, you know, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, you're enjoying the onset of some nice weather. Hopefully it's not too hot and you're getting outside a little bit and celebrating everything being alive for the moment. You know what I'm saying? Don't let any trees fall on your head if you could avoid it. I'm still freaked out about that. It just makes me think dark thoughts. Not like, you know, not too dark, but it's just like, oh my God, what if? But I guess you can't do that. I guess you have to just accept your good fortune sometimes when it happens and just move on. But man, oh man, falling trees. I don't need that in my life. I've got enough going on. So thanks for tuning in, you guys. It's nice to talk with you or talk to you and to have you here. And I hope you'll come back next week. I got, uh, I believe it's Marcy Dermansky coming up next week. I got to check my notes, but I think that's what it is. So be well, and I will talk to you soon.